deal with a topic that I just love, and that's the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. And this morning, we'll be starting in page, on page 944 in the book of Romans. Now, I've offloaded a lot of uh, material into uh, six pages that uh, are going to be on the back table uh, when you leave. And I would like for you, the two basic questions I ask there and try to answer, what happens to us when we die? And then what happens to us or for us when Jesus comes again? And uh, I hope this will be extremely helpful for you, give you a framework with which to think about the future uh, it's really an exploration of the beauties of God that are going to break out upon us. That's basically what it is. So go get your ice cream and start eating it, you know. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful material from the Bible. Uh, it's not me. It's just, just putting the Bible out there. Um, and I would urge you to uh, consider spending an hour this week on at least half of it and an hour next week on the other half, like, Put it in your schedule. Do it. Don't just read through these. These, like, meditate. Think about this. Let it soak into your, you know, spiritual bones. Um, it's sweet, critical stuff. It, it's the kind of thing that I've had more comments, not from me, but just from our church and how this has changed people's lives because it changes every minute of your day. It changes especially the Everyday things that you do, it gives you a completely new perspective if you've not heard any of it before. So I urge you to, uh, to do that. So on page uh, 944, we'll begin reading with verse 14. And I've included, really our section starts with verse 18, but I've included this to show you the connection between our being the children of God and what's going to happen to us in the end. And you'll see the idea, the phrase children of God uh, repeated in this section and the next. And then you'll see the idea of being glorified or glory that, that brings continuity between these two. And those are tied together, our sonship, our adoption, and our glory. So beginning with verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth 
until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, bless us as we consider this word of, that the Holy Spirit has given to us. We thank you for it. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you for your glorious salvation that stretches out forever and embraces the whole of creation itself. We praise you. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I grew up, I didn't hear anything about the resurrection of the body. Now, that was partly because I was in a church uh, that had a lot of liberalism in it. And in that, in, in liberal thinking, Jesus himself was not really bodily raised from the dead. But we just had the idea that Jesus continued to live on. And his spirit continues to be with us. And that's basically what happens to us. We die and our spirit lives on. And that's the resurrection. That's the celebration of Easter. But mixed in with that is just kind of folk ideas that I grew up with of the fact that you, you die and then you go off to heaven and that's it. That's what happens. That's what you wait for. That's what you look forward to, dying and going to heaven. And that's the end of the matter when you get to heaven. It's done. You're over. And, and that's the eternal life that you have. Is, is there. Uh, we even have guys that come back from uh, seeing visions of heaven and they come back and describe the mansions that are there in heaven uh, that are going to be ours uh, when we get there. Of course, mistranslating a, a word in the Bible to do that, but he saw them, he says. Anyway, it gets really, really weird when you hear things like, you're not made for this world. You're going to a different place. You're going to a better place. Not this world. This world is over with. And this world is done with. God's going to annihilate, destroy this world. We're going to the heaven because the earth is done with. First our bodies are done with, then the earth is done with. And there's this weird interplay in our culture with those who've died. Like we watch The Voice and regularly somebody's relative has died and they're looking down on them and helping them and helping them win the voice and things like this and these kind of weird interplay of but but there's the assumption that we live on in some way and it got really weird when Alabama lost to Ole Miss several years back uh yes they did it sometimes happens and uh and uh they were interviewing the Ole Miss quarterback afterwards and because there were these strange couple of plays through which Ole Miss won the game, you know, I won't describe them. They're just strange that they even happened. And uh, so this lady's talking to the quarterback, and she says, what about those plays? That was just crazy. And he said, yeah, well, you know, God Almighty's in heaven, and my grandmother's up there, and my cousin. 
And I'm like, oh, that's how you won the game. Your grandmother and your cousin are in, in heaven. And I furiously texted uh, Walton, Lauren Jones, who are Ole Miss fans. I said, no fair, your cousin and your grandmother helped that night. And they, she texts right back, well, Alabama doesn't have any grandmothers in heaven. And I say, well, we used to. You know, it's just all back and forth. Jumping in the weirdness of this interview, you know. I'll be a part of it, sure. And then you have, you know, popular ideas. And sometimes these really, and you've heard me say this before, some of you, but sometimes these really capture some of the wrong thinking about heaven. You know, the one where the guy's sitting on a cloud, he's, he's there all by himself. That's the picture of heaven. You know, you're on a cloud somewhere. You may be playing a harp or something else, right? Um, I guess... And he's just sitting there all by himself. And he says, I should have brought a magazine. (laughs) Or this one that you hear, you people that, and me too, we find it hard. Like if you heard that we were going to extend the worship service to two hours every Sunday, probably lose half of you, right? I can't take two hours. And then you hear, heaven is a worship service that lasts forever. (laughs) And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, okay. You know, and you just, you you have no way to relate to that, really. You don't have any way to relate to, you're not going to even have a body. But then we make up things about what kind of body we might have in heaven and all these things. And... The point is, there's a dead body in the ground. And we take that seriously. The Bible takes that seriously. And from the Bible's perspective, if it's just that you die and you live on after you die, it's just another way to describe being dead. That's the Bible's perspective. Oh, you mean they're, oh, you're saying they're dead. They are dead. Now, in the Old Testament, it was not really a happy prospect to be dead and didn't look forward to it. In the New Testament, at least this has changed, right, in Christ. Because, as Paul says, if we leave this body, we go to be with the Lord. And that's, that's encouraging. It transforms even the hope of dying itself. But in Old and New Testament, the hope was not only the redemption of our bodies, but the redemption of all creation. Always. Always. This is the teaching of the Bible. The Bible is shockingly about creation and the body. I love the little phrase in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says, The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Right? God is pro-body. He is pro-creation. He didn't make a mistake when he made creation. That's what, the, uh, that's, that's what the Gnostics thought, you know, that some lower God way down that uh, echelon basically kind of threw up and messed up and made this stuff, and God's going to suck it all back out, and we'll just have nice, pure, beautiful spirit and not all this ugly, horrible stuff. That's paganism, thorough 
paganism of the kind that Paul describes in 1 Timothy 2 as coming from the doc, is a doctrine of demons. So he says people who say that you shouldn't get married and have those pleasures and you shouldn't eat good food and have those pleasures. He says, yeah, that comes right out of hell. Comes right out of hell. Because the creation, as Paul says there, is good. It's to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. So the central vision of the Bible is a restored, renewed creation with restored and renewed human beings ruling in that creation and exploring and exploiting their many wonderful gifts now finally perfectly in perfect collaboration forever in perfect servanthood and love toward one another. What would that be like? What would that be like? And I have been able to say to parents who've lost children or lost children even before they were born, to say, by God's grace, this child will have his his or her full humanity and will explore that humanity perfectly and beautiful forever in the new heavens and the new earth. He or she will miss nothing. Nothing. Because God redeems all of us and all of this. Right? Long introduction. And if everything else is this long, we're in trouble. But I have my timer that tells me I've gone way over so far. There's actually a hymn that reads this way. Very interesting. O resurrection day when Christ the Lord from heaven comes down and bears my soul away. Doesn't change my body. He bears my soul away from here somewhere to go somewhere. So in this passage, our first uh, point as we have here is the future glory of the children of God. And you see it throughout the passage. Uh, And the reason he mentions creation in verse 19 is to show how wonderful this glory is that's coming. Because he says we're going to be glorified with Christ. He describes it in terms of being heirs with Christ. And part of that means we will be heirs of his resurrection and we will have his resurrection body. Now, any verse I quote is in the paper, so... You can find all of that. But our our bodies will be made like his glorious body. So we inherit with him his resurrection body. And we inherit with him the rule of the whole earth. And the ownership. We become ruler owners of the new world. Using our gifts to spread in a good way this time. In a perfect way. Uh, our culture as human beings. But you see, when he says the sufferings are not compared with the glory that is to be revealed uh, to us, uh, the word there is a little bit strange. It's the only time Paul uses this word with this word reveal. But it literally would be revealed into us. Okay, And what he's trying to get at is that Glory is revealed, and we're not just observing God's glory. 
But the idea is that this glory embraces us. It brings us into its scope. It apprehends us. And we are so, this, this, this glory is so effectively revealed that we participate in it and are made glorious with it. That's what he means when he says this glory is revealed to us. And then you see the, the majesty of this glory is that, because he says uh, the glory that be revealed for us for, as though he's saying, he's trying to get it at the beauty of it, for the creation waits for this. See, that's the feel of this. The glory to be revealed for us. Well, how glorious. Let me tell you, the creation is waiting for it. That's how majestic this is. That's how wonderful. That's how cosmic this is. That you one day will be glorified. It will involve everything when you are glorified. And then, of course, as we'll get to it, he describes why the creation is even looking for this. But his point is, we are the key to the freedom of the whole of creation. So that creation uh, is awaiting the revelation of the children of God. And the idea is that as we were originally made to be the rulers of the world, we were commanded to subdue and rule the earth. This is repeated in Psalm 8 when the psalmist rejoices in the amazing place that mankind has been given to be made a little lower than God and to be rulers over the kingdoms of this world animals in particular at that place, this glorious position of rule. And so it's like a train. Some of you heard me do this illustration, but we're the engine. And when the engine fell off the track, it took the whole of the train into the ravine. But the whole train is waiting for the engine to be put back on the track. And then the whole of creation is renewed at that point. Now it has its purpose restored. Perfect humanity representing God and using creation for God. But I want to underscore one other thing. Notice in verse 23, this glory that he speaks of is what? The redemption of our bodies. And he has this shocking statement. Having mentioned adoption already that we read... You've already received the spirit of adoption. But in another sense, you're waiting eagerly for your adoption. You've been adopted, but you haven't completed your adoption. Your appearance as children of God has not been brought to its wonderful consummation. I think here of John's statement in 1 John 3 where he says, It has not yet appeared what we shall be. He's talking about being the children of God. But when he appears, we will be like him. We're incognito in that sense, right? He doesn't look like we're the future kings and queens. And the older I get, the less it looks like that I'm, not that I ever did. But, <clears throat> but here he says, we're waiting this redemption notice of our bodies. 
This is how important your body is, brother and sister. Until it's redeemed, you're not completely finished with your adoption. It's not an extra thing tacked on. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to bring the body into this. No, this is essential. It's not done until the whole of your body, the whole of your being is redeemed. But that's what we're waiting for, the redemption of our bodies. So it's not a shell with the real you in it. You know, it's not this house and, and, and you get out of the house and it doesn't matter if you're in the house. It doesn't matter if you're in the shell or not because the real you is there. And you've got, to, you've got to think in your mind, I don't just have a body. I am body. I am so, but I am body. Animals, just bodies. Humans, bodies, and spirits. Angels, just spirits. We're that wonderful, amazing, unique thing, spirit body. And God himself, in the person of Jesus, is spirit body. How glorious. How glorious that God took a body to himself. But then we have the future liberation of planet Earth. Connected to... The glorification of the children of God. When we, when our bodies are redeemed, see, it's the same time where creation, verse 21, will be set free from its bondage to decay. It says it was subjected to futility. Now, if you back up to chapter 1 in Romans, very interesting thing you read. It says that... But claiming to be wise, chapter 1, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Therefore, God gave them to the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And also in verse 21, they became futile in their thinking. What was their futility? That they turn the creation into their God. We, we, our, our minds go no further than God. We invest in this world. We depend upon this world. We count on this world. We prayed about that very thing. It's a wonderful confession that Ryan wrote this morning about that we, we, even though we are new in Christ, look how we still attach ourselves to creation and make it our God. And isn't it interesting that the futility of creation is being led by someone that is no longer leading creation in its purpose to glorify God? There's a sense in which you see our misspent affection on creation is our abuse of creation. I'm not just talking about very obvious ways in which we ruin the... uh, ruin the planet or whatever that may whatever those things may be but it's about from the get-go we abuse the creation because we don't use it in order to know and love and adore god but we spend ourselves on it and only it and we abuse it 
So creation will be set free when we finally are made perfect and we are made those glorious kings and queens who now can lead creation where it's supposed to go. To the glory of God. And our kingship is restored, you might say. Our kingship is restored in Christ. And you see, that's why Christ... That's why the Son of God became a human being, died, was raised to new life, exalted in heaven, which Hebrews says, hey, now, that idea of man ruling over the world, it's finally begun to be true. It's finally begun to be true because a man now is ruling over the whole world. And that's the symbol, that's the first taste of our full humanity being restored to that kingship. The Son of God didn't need kingship. He is king. He's the Lord of creation. He made everything. All of that, all of that trouble, if you want, which is a very light word to call it, of dying and being raised and being exalted, it was for you and me. It was for his people to bring us to final reign with him. To share in his reign, to share in his inheritance. Why should we receive the world? Why should it be bequeathed to us? What have we done but rebel against God? We should be thrown off the property. But no, God doesn't do that. He enters into our situation. He bears the very wrath we deserve. He's raised from the dead. And in all of this, it's to restore us so that we won't, not only will we not be thrown off the property in outer darkness and judgment, but because Jesus has borne our punishment for us, We are so in the favor of God in Christ. The world is bequeathed to us. So that Paul can say at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, all things are yours. All things. The world is yours. Life and death is yours. Everything belongs to you because you belong to Jesus. Surely you wouldn't doubt that Jesus would inherit the earth, right? That Jesus has a right to own and rule the world. Well, there you go. That settles it. Because you are united with Christ. And he only acted for you, not for himself. So, all of creation is renewed. And this means that our original vocation of creating a culture in this world is Renewed as well. And this brings us to our last uh, point. uh, Living in the present as the children of God. You see, in Genesis 1, uh, it's a culture development that is given to mankind. It's when we cross that line and begin to realize what we produce as a culture. Now, of course, now our culture is fractured and broken in many ways and In the worst ways, we use it violently, right? But you still see the glimpses of beauty and amazement at what mankind is able to do in developing his culture, uh, in developing our culture. And that is what we were made for. In Psalm 104, for instance, there's a celebration of the whole of creation in Psalm 104. And a few verses there celebrate man. And when it does celebrate man, it celebrates him, unlike the animals, 
in his cultural connection or cultural production. Because it talks about he gives him plants for food. He, he raises for food. And he raises other food for his animals. And he raises bread that gladdens his heart. And I love this one. He makes wine that gladdens his heart and makes his face shine. I'll let that for your interpretation. Okay. <laughs> but I love that idea. Wine. And just, just hear God in this. And he made wine that makes man's face shine. That's who God is. Okay? Now, how do mountains... Later it says, all your works praise you. How do mountains praise God? They don't have a voice, right? How do the trees praise God? How does a peach praise God? How does a beetle praise God? They just praise God by being beetles. Being mountains, being what they are, being what God made them to be. Brothers and sisters, you know I've got to get in our heads. You praise God by being a human being. Just being a human being. Doing what human beings do. Thinking like human beings think. And of course, I'm not thinking about sin here. I'm talking about your creativity, your inventiveness, your diligence, your... The, the way you organize things. The way, there's nothing that you do that isn't in some way a recapitulation of God who made the world. The, the whole of Genesis 1 is a developmental project. It's a development project. He finds the earth. It's dark. It's, it's in chaos. It's barren. And the development part project starts with God. And then he tells man, that's what you go do. You go develop this whole world. You find its resources. You, you, you use, bring, you know, eventually, if you're spelling it all out, he'd say, just take stuff out of the ground and fly it one day. Fly to the moon or to Mars. You're like, wait, stuff out of the ground? It's going to fly? Yeah, that's, that's what I want you to do. That glorifies God. To be human beings. To be human beings in what we do. When we study, when we create, when we work, when we play. It's okay to play. And there are balances, there's everything we know, all that's okay. But fawns play, kittens play, puppies play, children play. Because they're human beings and they glorify God. They glorify God as human beings. So, his glory endures in what we do and how we make him known. We develop the world as he developed the world. We show by our human cultural power the glory of God. I love this quote by Middleton who writes on the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, humanity, and he's speaking, of course, in ideal terms, especially would be in the new heavens and the new earth when we're made perfect. But humanity is a prism refracting the pure light of God into a rainbow of cultural activities that scintillate 
with the Creator's glory. I want to read that again. We are a prism refracting the pure light of God into a rainbow of cultural activities that scintillate with the Creator's glory that fills the earth with His glory. You see, when it says the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God, how do you think the whole earth one day will be filled with the knowledge of God? It's this. As the prism spreads itself out, manifests itself, the glory of God spreads over the whole of the earth. Our time is up, but you have to see the continuity of what you do now and what you will do then. That it anticipates what we will be and do. That at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talked about the resurrection for 57 verses, he says, is final therefore, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your work is not in vain. It's not going to just poof up into nothing. Everything you do has meaning. It has eternal meaning. And there's a continuity about what we do now and what we will do then. It is an anticipation. And the more we manifest God through the faithful representation of God and extend the presence of his, this divine king to the earth, it is a preparation for that day. The more we act for justice in this world on small scale and macro scale. And that becomes a real concern of ours because we're looking forward to new heavens and the earth where there will be righteousness and justice. And so any act, anything that promotes mercy, that promotes relief to the afflicted is an anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth. How can we omit that? How can we not be a part of it? And yet I'm... I'm so guilty, it's shameful. Brothers and sisters, there's so much to be said. Think of Christ's work when he came. It was in anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth. What did he do? Healed, repaired, showed mercy, put people back together again. It was an anticipation. It was a preview of coming attractions. And it's the train in which we should walk. We don't have the miraculous powers of Christ, but we see the direction of it. So in anticipating the new heavens and the earth, we practice out those things that will advance us toward it. One last final glorious thought. In all of the cultures that surrounded Israel, all the cultures in the ancient world. And I, I, I read a lot about this when I was preparing to be a docent at the, uh, the Kimball, uh, especially as I was going to take people through the, what I call the idolatry section. Uh, I don't say that at the Kimball, maybe, but uh, anyway... But it has, it really does have all the idols of, you know, India and Africa and all these places, you know, uh, that are there. While, you know, I won't go into all that, but uh, crazy things. But 
again and again, the idol represents the king of that society. Whether it's a, a society from the middle of Africa or it's a society in, a, in an island in the South Pacific or it's in India, it represents. So the kings represented God. They manifested God. And you can see how they would because they have the power of life and death. They declare what the laws are. They, you know, they, they obviously, they represent God. They, they are a symbol of God on earth. And Genesis comes along <laughs> and it says that role is now handed out to everyone. You're all kings. You're all representatives of God. Not just that king. Every human being has that dignity. By God's grace in Christ, we can walk in new life and manifest even now our glorious kingship. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, bless us to rejoice in you and to live out the glorious life you've given us. That the resurrection has already begun. We are already living it out. Our life is already caught up in Christ. Lord, give us grace that we will manifest you in this world until you come again. For Jesus' sake, amen.